We are in the book of Mark, chapter 2. We are looking at verses 18 through 22 this morning. We're not far along in the book of Mark, and we already see hostility. We see disdain for Jesus. We see tension building. We see questioning of his motives, of why he's doing what he is doing as the message that he's bringing becomes more and more clear. The hostility is getting more and more intense. The backdrop to this situation is a backdrop of religious systems based on human works of righteousness to try to be right with God. And in those systems, we may say that they are basically humanistic systems, humanistic ways, humanistic understandings. And when I say that, what I'm saying is that these philosophies and theologies They start with man. They are man-centered. And this is the core of our sin nature in that our sin nature is man-centered. And this humanistic idea is a result of the fall. And we see developed into a system at the Tower of Babel where they made a tower to reach God on their own. And because of that, they were scattered throughout the earth. In other words, God was judging their own attempts to reach him. And in essence, humanism is man's attempt to be God himself, to usurp God's authority. And so here comes Jesus in that environment. And he comes in that environment with this message that was threatening their humanism, threatening their religious systems. It was an affront to their humanism, to their protection of their own selves and the way that they like to view themselves as a a threat to the um, carrying out and the uh, continuing on of these religious systems and ways of thinking. And so when Jesus started uh, coming with this message and he came not only with this message, but he backed the message up with healing people and doing miracles because his message was a message that he was the Messiah. So so that message in itself really is, is what led to his death. And as we see these the beginning of these hostilities towards Jesus, they they start off just with these questionings of who is he and what is he doing and how can he say that. It ultimately builds and leads to this anger that we find in Luke chapter 6, verse 11, where it says, the scribes and Pharisees were filled with rage and they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus, this 
hostility and this rage that we see ultimately in Matthew 26, 63, where it was asked of Jesus, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said that he was. And the answer back was, then the high priest tore his clothes, saying he has spoken blasphemy. And so these things that we're seeing when Jesus comes and brings this message of heaven, where he brings the kingdom of heaven to this earthly kingdom, we see this conflict, we see hostility, and we see things like where Jesus said in John 14, 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. In our day and age, in many cases, that is considered hate speech to say that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Jesus was bringing a message of exclusivity. He was bringing a message of one God, one truth, one book, one way. He was bringing a message that he would say broad is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life. And so this conflict led to his death, this conflict in regards to his message and who he was, it led to his disciples' death. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 16.9, Paul says, a, a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Jesus himself said in John 15, 18, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would have uh, loved you. Yet, because you are not of this world, but I have chosen you out of this world, therefore the world hates you pretty heavy stuff so we think about what's going on and what's happening to Jesus and we think about how Mark starts off his book saying he's writing this whole book it's the gospel of Jesus Christ it's this good news of Jesus Christ so why is there so much hostility because it's an affront and offensive to the human heart that loves itself and won't deny itself and will make every sort of passageway to an excuse in order to deny Christ, but in, yet in many cases to think that they are still maintaining a relationship with Christ. And so this hostility that we see towards Jesus, that we see carried out towards his disciples, that we have seen carried out throughout church history, that we see today. And that you and I are beginning in our country to feel more of that hostility in our own country that is 
a country founded on the things that we are preaching and teaching today, and yet now humanism is encroaching upon us. There's a, attempts to close churches down. There are, are uh, explanations that Christians don't belong in this world. There are uh, the painting of the picture that Christians that believe in the Bible are out of touch with reality, are holding up progress of society, that Christians are the ones who are bigoted and hateful, and that's the picture that's being painted of a Bible-believing Christian today in our own country. Why is that? Why does it feel like we're starting to be pushed into these corners and you, you know what's interesting is a lot of us look at the previous martyrs of the church and we sort of look at them and say that was an amazing faith that they displayed that was an amazing life that they lived but that wasn't said of them by their own culture and their, their own society See, one of, the, one of the catches of being a martyr is that society doesn't deem you as noble. They will look at you as you deserve this. Society will look at you as you, you are hateful and evil and bringing about hate and evil into our world, and so you deserve to die. And isn't that what they said to Jesus? He deserved to die. Isn't that mind-blowing? But we're, we're feeling more of that tension. We have brothers and sisters across the globe now that, that are literally feeling that through imprisonment and torturing and death. But we're starting to feel that here more in our country. Why? It's because of the message. It's because of the gospel. It's because of the, the power of the gospel is an affront to humanism and this world is a world that is under the influence of satan and we as the church are light that comes into darkness and so that's why we read things like in first corinth or i'm sorry second corinthians chapter 4 verse 3 which says but even if our gospel is veiled it's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds, get this, the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For it is God who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So that's why there's hostility. That's why you and I, in many cases, are being silenced in our workplaces this is why we can't talk about jesus in many places in many public spaces 
it's always interesting. For me, I get the opportunity to officiate weddings or officiate funerals or special events like quinceañeras and things like that. <laughs> we just had one of those um, Friday. But anyway, it, you know, it's interesting is I make it clear whenever I'm asked to do a wedding or a funeral, I make it clear that I'm going to preach the gospel. And if that's not something you want to happen at your event, then I'm not your guy. Because I'm not going to waste my time. And so when I go, it's very interesting because you, when I start preaching the gospel, you can see things get uncomfortable. You can see people get angry. You can see disdain. You can see shaking their head. It's a, it's, it's, there's a hostility. And I see that here in the fellowship when people sometimes um, bring people that don't want to hear the things that we say here. You can see it. And it's weird because sometimes you guys don't think I see you. <laughs> I'm not blind. But you think you're hidden there. I could see it. But it, it's interesting to see the reactions and to see how things can make people uncomfortable. And that's not my desire. I don't want, I don't like doing that. But I also know what's at stake. And so I want to encourage you. And you probably know you've brought friends and they, they like, well, I didn't want, I, that's not what I expected. Keep bringing them. Because they may not expect it, but they need to hear the gospel. This is, this is what is so vital. So don't stop doing that. But what we're going to talk about this morning is the incomparable, separate, and distinct gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is what we're going to look at as we read through in Mark 2, verses 18 through 22. Read with me here. It says, the disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and they said to him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old, and the, uh, the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins, the wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined, but the new wine must be put into new wineskins. So what's going on here? As this tension and hostility develop, we see here that Jesus is pointing out the exclusivity of the gospel. Notice here how he does that. And I'm going to look at three different things that distinguish and separate 
the gospel from anything else, but this is, that's not an inclusive list, but I want to look at these three particular things. And, and the first one is the fact that, that the disciples of John, they could not understand why his disciples weren't doing the particular religious activities that they were doing, in particular fasting. So in verse 18, the disciples of John, which seems kind of weird. These are John the Baptist's disciples. And so John the Baptist's disciples, normally we'd have sort of a positive uh, thinking or understanding of them because John the Baptist was baptizing them and hordes of people were going out to the Jordan um, the, the Jordan River to be baptized and his baptism was a baptism of repentance and he was considered by Jesus at that time the greatest man ever to live. He was considered a forerunner of Jesus Christ. He was a fulfillment of prophecy that the prophecy would say that there would come one before the Messiah to prepare the way for the Messiah. And so John the Baptist was doing that. How was he doing that? He was telling people that they needed to repent of their sins. And so he, he was baptizing them in that regard that they'd say, I want to be forgiven of my sins. I, I don't want to stand before God without this forgiveness. But at this point, Jesus had not died and rose again from the dead. And also, these groups of people who had come to John the Baptist, many of them became groupies of John the Baptist. And so John would have to say things like, um, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. He would say things like, um, I'm not even comparable to Jesus. I couldn't even strap the lace of his sandals. So he was separating himself from how the people wanted to look at him, sort of deify him. So it, it, John here is in jail at this point in Jordan. And as John is in jail, he will soon meet his death, his fate. And so now as they are thinking about John and thinking about what he was telling them to repent, so then now they're questioning. These are the particular people that are really driving this question to Jesus. The, the, it says the Pharisees, but it was really driven by the disciples of John the Baptist, if you read Matthew's account of this. So as they're, as they're watching Jesus and they're watching those who are following Jesus, they don't understand why his disciples weren't fasting like they were fasting. Why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees, why do they fast and your disciples do not fast? So that was the question. This is what this whole teaching really revolves around. It's just this idea of fasting. So in their scriptures, there's only one scripture that sort of mandated fasting and it was once a year on the Day of Atonement. That's found in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 29 through 31. 
However, as so often would be the case, we also see this in the book of Zechariah chapter 8, where they just kept adding more things to do on top of the things that God required them to do. So fasting was something that they did, and by the time Jesus had come, they would fast twice a week. They had fast on Thursday, and they had fast on Monday. The reason they chose those days in particular to fast, because it was thought that Moses went up to the mountain to receive the law, the Ten Commandments, on a Thursday, and he came down on a Monday. So they thought that would be pretty good. We'll, we'll start doing that. We'll start fasting. Now, why were they feeling the need to do that? It was because we all have a, a leaning inclination or a bent when there's a void in our relationship with God to add in our own human works. And this is what became a big deal, a very big deal. In fact, if we look at the book of Luke, chapter 18, verse 11, feel free to turn there if you like, but we got to move pretty quickly. So in the book of Luke, chapter 18, verses 11 through 12, there's actually a, a parable that Jesus is explaining. And it's a parable that involves two people. So in verse 10 of Luke 18, we'll start there. It says, The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. And he said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. And then he explains other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. And then he said, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I possess. This is the background of why John the Baptist's disciples are wondering why Jesus' disciples are not doing what they're doing. Because it was seen and viewed and understood that by doing these things like fasting, that you would merit favor from God. And not only that, this system that was in place can be seen or I should say revealed as to what is really all about because it was used to glorify man and not God. So if you will turn to Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount verses 16 through 18. So we read in Matthew 6, verses 16 through 18. Jesus is giving instructions about fasting. He says, moreover, 
when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites. So this became a very hypocritical thing. Why hypocritical? Because outwardly, they wanted everybody to see that they were holy and righteous. This is what's called self-righteousness. This is at the core of humanism, that humanism promotes oneself and one's own goodness. And Jesus is saying, when you do fast, don't be like the hypocrites with sad countenance, with the sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So turn back with me. So this is, this is the background of what was going on. So John the Baptist's disciples would be thinking in their mind about this holiness, and they would see John the Baptist and they would, they would say, well, I want to be holy like him. I will be baptized like him. And then they would see the Pharisees. And what we're seeing is the Pharisees really went to a lot of work to make themselves look bad. A lot of you and I went to a lot of work to make ourselves look good this morning. The Pharisees went to a lot of work to make themselves look bad. Because people would say, ooh, look, look, man, he's, he must be fasting. Look how terrible he looks. So don't ever go to somebody and say, are you fasting? <laughs> so what we see here is very interesting. And I want to I really point this out. So what's happening is in, in what Jesus is instituting in this era of self-righteousness and even a self-righteousness that uses external religion and one's own attempt at morality to try to appease God or impress God. But in reality, they want people to be impressed with them. And that is completely the opposite of the gospel. This is completely the opposite of what we are told of how we are to be saved. So the distinctiveness, the incomparable and separateness of the gospel, first and foremost, is that it's not by works. And it's not by and not found in the human heart. So fasting, we, we saw fasting in and of itself is not bad. Jesus actually gave instructions about it. But what is bad is when one uses some sort of religious exercise to try to make themselves holy and righteous when in reality they are the most filled with their self. 
What I also find interesting here is that John the Baptist, his disciples now, they were sort of at a juncture. And this particular scripture does not mean that it was every single one of his disciples. But what they needed to do now is they needed to move from their understanding of their need for something else, their need for repentance, but that they'd have to be very careful not to find it in and of themselves or in and of an act that they would do. John the Baptist's disciples would need to move from that position to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And this may have happened through some of them as they questioned them, questioned Jesus. But at this point, there is not that movement from where they are, they were or what they were trusting in. There wasn't that movement away from themselves to God. And that, that's what was needed. And this is often what happens with many people that they don't move away from themselves to Jesus. And so they maintain some sort of religiosity. There are many religions. There are many churches that one can go to to maintain and be completely 100% their same self but then add in some religious exercises and activities. And that person is not only in the same position that they were before adding in those religious things that they did, but they're actually in a worse position. Because when one thinks that they can be right with God through something that they do, they are in a very bad position. They're in a position of self-righteousness. And in that position, Satan will come and feed that self-righteousness. And that self-righteousness will be fed to where that person thinks that they are actually better than another person, more moral, more holy, and more righteous. And that that thinking, any sort of thinking, any thought that you and I might be good enough to be accepted by God, that thinking where I'm not that bad of a person, I'm a pretty good person, and then maybe you are. Maybe you actually do a lot of stuff. Maybe you feed the homeless and help people change their tires and when they have flat tires and go to the gas station, when somebody runs out of gas, maybe you jumpstart people's cars and you say, I'm a pretty good person, but you're not. Because those things that we do, although on a horizontal level, it may be a good thing that we do, but on a vertical level, 
in comparison to the holiness of God, we are not good. And the Bible says there's no one who is good, no, not one. And Jesus said only God is good. And so what makes the gospel so incomparable and separate and distinct is that it completely excludes human effort in order to be right with God. Completely wipes it out. And the disciples of John are wondering about that. They can't understand that. So now Jesus, is he's going to explain that in verse 19. He explains that. And what he explains is that now, if you understand there's not one good thing that will make you acceptable to God, then you, then you have to know it's, it's all by the Savior. That's the second thing. It's all by the Savior. It's all by the one. And so as you see this develop, can you see why this was so upsetting to the religious establishment? to those who thought they were good. When Jesus came, it reminded them how ungood or not good they were. And we don't like that, do we? We don't like to know that. We don't like to look in the mirror. It's hard to, to realize our own, own condition, but that, that right there is the most fundamental and most important thing that we have to start to understand that there is absolutely 100% nothing within us that would make us acceptable to God. And the reason is, is because sin. So the second thing Jesus answers, and he's, he's basically saying it's all about the Savior. So in verse 19, so Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. So that may not resonate too much with us, but it would with them. Because there is actually a teaching and understanding a law that if you were involved in a wedding, that you were free from any religious obligation that would put a damper on your joy. And this is what Jesus is conveying to them because they would know that. They would understand that. And Jesus is saying, those things that you do were, are really were meant to bring you into a relationship with me. And Jesus is telling them, now I'm here. So there's no need to do those things because uh, originally fasting was simply a, a way to help one connect with God better. It was a way to withhold particularly from food so that one can focus one's energy on their relationship with God. 
It was a denial of some fleshly thing in order to heighten one's spiritual uh, understanding of something. And so other than the Day of Atonement, it was meant to be occasional. It was meant to be voluntary. And as we saw in Matthew 7, it was meant to be private. And so what Jesus is actually doing is he's, in a way that they would understand, he would be actually saying everything that has gone on in the Old Testament, what we would know as the Old Testament, but in Jewish history, all the things about the temple, all the things about the rituals and the purity things and all the things about the sacrifices and the feast days and all that, what he's, he, what he's saying is all of those things are, I'm here now. It'd be sort of like a, like a wedding. Oftentimes a, a bride or a groom they go through a lot of work to get themselves looking good. They work out for months to try to fit in the dress or the tuxedo or what it is. But it would be weird to finally get to the wedding. And then you're at the reception and they're rolling out the either chicken or beef. They're rolling out all this stuff. And you're like, no, I'm, I'm on a diet. Forget that. And they're bringing out the gator. No, I'm, I'm, I'm dieting. The point is, the thing's over now. All the dieting was for that. This is what Jesus is saying. All this work, all this effort, all these understandings of the Old Testament, well, I'm here now. It's, it's, it's like training for football. Football season's coming up, and they go through summer, and they go through all these things, get themselves ready. But there comes a point where the training stops, and it's game day. Jesus is saying it's game day. It's go time. It's time to celebrate. It's time to rejoice. And he gives the example of a wedding because Jesus is saying my presence brings joy. I'm here. It's done. All those rituals, all that work, all that effort, it's over now. I'm here. And his bringing of this understanding he also suggests in verse 20 something very interesting. He, for the first time in Mark, alludes to something that's going to happen to him because he says, but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And that word taken is a violent taking. So Jesus is hinting about he's here now, but this isn't necessarily what they think it is because they were thinking about the final establishment of the Messiah's kingdom on earth. And so Jesus is telling them something different. He's saying, I'm here now. This is what everything led to. This is the day. This is the thing. But he's also saying that this is not the final millennial kingdom because he first has to do something in regards of saving people. And that's what he came the first time to do. He came first to save the lost. 
He will come a second time to establish his kingdom on earth. And so we now we wait for that. And that's why he's telling his, uh, or the questioners, John the Baptist's questioners, he's telling them that it doesn't make sense for my disciples to fast because the fasting would be something in regards to bringing forth or understanding or coming to a place of relationship with me, but now they have it, right? So now it's game day, now it's wedding time, now it's reception, now it's party time, now it's joy time. It doesn't make sense because it's here, but then he says, but it's just going to be here for a little bit, and then I'm going to be taken away violently. So that tells us a little bit more about the fact that when Jesus was with them physically, completely no need to fast. But Jesus did die and rose again and sits at the right hand of the Father. And so for us, we have his presence in the spirit. We have the kingdom of God that will at one time or in the future be on earth. We have it living inside of us. And so we rejoice, but do we fast? Should we fast? And the answer is yes, because we fast because we're not in the millennial kingdom, because we still have to deal with our flesh, because we have to still live in a fallen world. And so fasting is a tool. It's private, it's occasional, and it's voluntary, but it's a powerful tool that we have. But in no way, shape, or form is it something that we do to be made right with God because what Jesus is saying, that it all comes down to this, why Jesus came, what he's explaining, comes down to a personal relationship. This is what makes the gospel incomparable and separate and distinct. One, that it's not of works. And two, our salvation is having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So you can see how that can be shocking, surprising, offensive to people. But we know that in many cases, but in John chapter 7, where Jesus will tell people who did a, a works or did a bunch of works in order to be right with God. And when they stand before God, he will say, depart from me. I never what? I never knew you. So the, the question is, do we know Jesus personally? Is he our personal Lord and Savior? So what we see happens is when Jesus is explaining you must be born again when Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 if any man be in Christ he's a new creation all things are passed away and all things are made new we're 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 seeing that this personal relationship is available to anybody and everybody who will come by faith to Jesus Christ who will put their faith in them in him and so our, our salvation and this message of the gospel is 
all tied up to having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And what we find is that when we are in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, one of the most notable characteristics of that is joy. Because in Psalm 1611, it says, in my presence is fullness of joy. We see in 1 John chapter 1, where he's talking about, I'm writing these things and telling you about the Messiah so that your joy may be full. So the church should be a joy-filled place where people are filled with the joy of God because of the realization of his forgiveness of our sins and that it's not of ourselves, not of works, but it's all of the Savior. But not only that, as we're saved and forgiven and we're born again and we have a relationship with God, now this relationship, being in fellowship with God himself, is where joy is and what joy is. It's unspeakable joy. And finally, in verse 21, not only is this gospel incomparable, separate and distinct, because it's not by works and it's, not, and it's all about a savior, but it's not about a system. So Jesus is, is as a good teacher does, they, they try to, explain a truth from all different angles and all different launching places of understanding of where people were. So now he goes from this uh, wedding understanding, he goes to understanding uh, clothing. And And he says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. In other words, what he's saying is we can't just patch Jesus into our already existing way of doing things. So like putting a patch on some, it's this is really weird teaching this because when I grew up, when I was little, it wasn't cool to buy torn jeans. What was cool is to buy untorn jeans and get them torn. Then you were cool. And then your mom would put a patch on it, and then you're really cool. And then the more patches you have, the cooler you are. So I don't know if this translates as well. But the, the point is, a new piece of cloth put, in, putting, put over a hole... Well, that new piece of cloth, when you put it on there, it'll shrink. So it'll make the hole worse. And what Jesus is saying is, you cannot maintain everything the way it is and just put a little Jesus in it and think that's going to work. You can't patch in patches of grace over your religious works. You can't put patches of forgiveness over the law. You can't put patches 
of mediators to approach God when Jesus is the only mediator between us and God. And many, they'll file, file in and out of church wanting some kind of fix, some kind of security, some kind of answer, some kind of antidote without any desire to surrender their life to Christ. This is what he's saying. That is no good. That does not work. You can't patch Jesus into your existing situation or circumstance without a willingness to say, Jesus, just you and you alone. There cannot be a mixture. It's just Jesus and him alone. And then he uses another analogy that we'll finish on. And he says, no one puts new wine into an old wineskin. An old wineskin, usually they would use a sort of a hollowed out goat and they'd pour wine in it and they would use the throat of the goat as the spigot and they'd pour wine in. Well, if that wineskin got old, it would be um, inflexible, wouldn't be elastic or expandable. And so if you put new wine in there, what would happen? New wine expands. So it would break the wineskin. This is the analogy being said. So then he says, if you do that, the new wine bursts the wineskins, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But then he says this, but new wine must be put in new wineskins. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that the, the new wine is the gospel. But be very careful because a lot of people use this scripture and they'll say, well, we have, uh, have to have a new wine. This, this gospel is too old and so we have to do something new. We have to add to it. We have to be more relevant. We have to be, when people say that, what they're saying is we have to be more worldly. And let me just say this. The gospel is the new wine. And the new wine never changes. And what he's saying is that this gospel, which contains in it the power of God to salvation to all who believe, the gospel is the thing. It's the message of salvation. It's the message of a changed life. That message, it never changes. But what can happen is we have some sort of religious system and this is what we've seen happen in many denominations. Many denominations, if you read their history, they started out with a work of God, a move of the Holy Spirit, and the gospel was preached. But then after that, it became systematized. Like, how do we bottle that? Let's have a formula. And so they create uh, organizational structures, and they create... Um, denominational books and programs and things that they stick to and that's the inflexible wineskin and so what it comes down to is this the new wine is the gospel of Jesus Christ and that never changes 
And we have to guard the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are living in a time in our country where a lot of philosophies and ideologies are meant to undermine the gospel. And we may not even realize that. The LGBT doctrine undermines the gospel. Abortion undermines the gospel. Critical race theory undermines the gospel. That's why these things are infiltrating the church and they're having success in the church in many cases because it's the failure to realize that the gospel is the thing and it has to be guarded and is worthy to be guarded with our life. The gospel has to be guarded with our life. Why? Because it is the only way that someone can be right with God. No, no other way. And people don't like that and will be offended by it. But for those who believe, it is the power of God to salvation. And so we rejoice in that. And we proclaim it and we stand on it. So as we finish this morning, I think it wise to rededicate ourselves to the gospel of Jesus Christ and be aware of anything that we have brought into that gospel that we would consider a way to be right with God. And we'd come back to the simple gospel. And I pray that the church would come back to the simple gospel. Because that's the only hope for the world. And that's the only hope for anybody who does not know God. It's the only hope to go to heaven. And God willingly, freely gives it to anybody who will come to him and receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Let's be gospel people. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. And Lord, I just think about how messed up I would be without your word. Lord, I, I look and experience the things that are going on in the world. And sometimes I wonder what's right, what's truth, what, what's going on. And I get and look at your word and I realize, I know, I see it. You've told us the end from the beginning. You've laid it all out. You're working out your plan, but Lord, most importantly for us, we pray as believers, we pray, Lord, that you would use our life to proclaim this message that you came according to scriptures, died according to scriptures, rose again according to scriptures, and offer forgiveness of sin, eternal life, and a relationship with you and eternity in heaven to all those who come. And so I pray as a church, Lord, that we'd be a great commission church, that not only would we be saved by the gospel, but we would stand on the gospel, we would live out the gospel, that we had guard the gospel. I pray that we had pray for opportunities to share the gospel. 
I pray for all the confusion out there. Satan is the author of confusion, confusing people, even people within the church, bringing about more of a humanistic viewpoint, bringing about more of a self-centered man way of doing things. And Lord, please forgive us. And I just want to finish by praying for anybody who is here or anybody that is listening. You must understand and must know that you desperately need Jesus Christ and you need him to forgive you of your sins. And I beg you not to wait, not to put it off. I pray that you decide today to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Pray and ask him to have mercy on you, to forgive you, and to wash away all of your sins, to write your name in the Lamb's book of life. And I promise you, you will never regret that. And so, Lord, we thank you, we praise you, and we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's all stand. We're going to worship the Lord before we go, and we're going to have Rob and Val up front. If anybody would like prayer about anything this morning, if you want to pray to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior or anything else, they're going to be up here. Come as we sing this last song. God bless you guys. Let's let's worship the Lord like we're around the throne of grace. God bless you guys.